0: listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Invite you in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. So last week we began this series through this short book and we saw that Habakkuk is Unlike any other prophet, most prophets heard a message from God and then communicated it to the people, usually in the form of a judgment. But Habakkuk is very different. Habakkuk is this very private conversation between him and God, and we get to listen in on it. And this is what we saw last week. Habakkuk, he looks at his people, Judah, and he can't believe what he sees and what he hears, the wickedness and the sin that is going on. And he says to God, God, why don't you do something? Well, then God answers him. And God says, oh, Habakkuk, I am. And you wouldn't believe it if I told you. But I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. And this had to floor Habakkuk. They were the most evil people that Habakkuk knew. So then that raised a second question. He then asked God, God, how can you do this? You are a holy God. How can you use a more wicked people to bless a lesser wicked people? And all of a sudden, Judah's wickedness didn't seem to be as big of a deal compared to the Chaldeans. So then, God is going to answer him in chapter 2. But this is where we left off. Habakkuk asked his second question. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower. And I will look out to see what he will say to me. So Habakkuk is expecting an answer. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. So this morning, let's look at God's second answer. How He is going to answer now Habakkuk's question of how can you do that? How can you use the Chaldeans who are more evil than Judah? And we begin in verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run Reads it, So he says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this down. So I think he scrambles to find a pen, getting ready to write down what the Lord is going to tell him. In verse 3, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. So God says, I have a plan, Habakkuk. But this plan has got an appointed time. I know exactly when it's all going to take place. It will not lie. It is going to be fulfilled. It can be trusted. But then God acknowledges something. He says, but it's going to seem slow. It's going to seem like I'm taking my time. But he says, wait for it. Be patient, Habakkuk. this is what we realize, that when God moves, it only seems slow to us. That God knows what He's doing. His timing is absolutely perfect. It will not delay one second. So it begins in verse 4. Behold, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within Him. But notice what He says. He says, Behold, His soul, it's one person. So what is He talking about? God is talking about the king of Babylon. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And notice what he says about him. He's puffed up. He is prideful. He is arrogant. What he does is crooked. He lives a crooked life. But This is what we need to understand. Even though he's speaking specifically about Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is representing all of Babylon. They are all prideful. They are all arrogant. They're all living crooked lives. But then there comes one word, but. And we are meant to see these in a a, a dark contrast to one another. So one, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And that phrase right there, that is really the whole point of the entire scriptures. That is what God is calling. That is what God is doing. In fact, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted by Paul in Romans and Galatians and also in Hebrews. The righteous shall live by faith. So he says one group are prideful, they're puffed up, they're selfish, they're sinful. But there is another group. The righteous shall live by faith. That there is a group that will live in faithfulness to God. So I think this is what God is saying. I think He's saying, I see the wickedness of Judah Habakkuk. I see the wickedness that will be coming from Babylon through the Chaldeans. I see it all. But in the midst of all of this wickedness, there will be some that will live by faith, that will be faithful to me. So I think the question to Habakkuk is really this. God is setting himself up to ask him, Habakkuk, will you remain faithful to me? Will you continue to trust me? Will you continue to believe in me, even if things get worse for a while? Will you live by faith, even if things don't improve for a season? Well, that brings me to a thought I've been thinking about all week is, maybe you've thought it before too, is, Why does God allow all this wickedness? It's almost going back to Habakkuk's original question. Why don't you do something? Why does God allow all the wickedness and sinfulness and selfishness that that we see? Well, I think there's a reason. The reason would kind of be like this. Let me illustrate it. So one time, uh, a couple of years ago, Marla came to me and uh, her wedding ring, the diamond, was gone. We didn't know where it went. We could not find it. It was just gone. So we went to a jewelry store. We walked in and we thought, well, maybe let's just pick out a diamond and have them put it back on that ring. And if you've ever been to these stores, they all do the same thing. When they pull out that diamond or they pull out that ring, what do they do? They place it on a, a black cloth or on a stand that is completely black. Well, why do they do that? is they want that diamond, they want that ring to really stand out. They want the contrast of the black background so that that diamond can be seen in all of its beauty. Well, I think a lot of times that's what we're seeing. Anytime there's dark, darkness and wickedness, sinfulness, it can allow us to see things maybe we haven't seen before or allow us to see things more clearly. So I think what God is doing in the backdrop of all the wickedness, we should be able to see more clearly, more rightly, His righteousness. In contrast, we should see His forgiveness, His mercy, and His grace. I think when hard and difficult and dark times comes, that's what it does. It, It gives us almost a new perspective. So think about the season that we are in and how our lives have changed. I mean, how many of us now appreciate teachers much more? Everybody's homeschooling, and man, we realize now the difficult task that that is. Or what about our appreciation for medical professionals? Several nights, people have gathered at the hospitals to pray, uh, with their flashers on, their cars on, to let them know that. To look up and see the nurses and doctors holding signs that uh, showing that we appreciate them, and they have noticed that. I mean, without this. Uh, time that we're in we would not have that appreciation it seems like or how often are you now looking forward to for someone to finally say "Uh, your table's ready you can come this way to be able to sit down and somebody bring you something to drink and to bring your food to the table something that we just kind of did all the time or whenever it might be but all of a sudden now there's this new look there's this new appreciation we notice things differently So I think the reason for the wickedness is God's righteousness will shine brighter against the backdrop of wickedness. In the midst of wickedness of of the Chaldeans especially, when that's going to come about, Habakkuk, will you continue to trust me? I think that's the question that is being asked even when things get worse. So what God is going to do now is God's going to reassure Habakkuk. Habakkuk, I know all that's going on. I see all the wickedness. I have a plan. He's going to let Habakkuk in on it. And it's five woes. The first one begins in verse 5 and 6. Woe to the thieves. He says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Shalol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges." He says, woe or sorrow is coming for the one that steals and takes what is not his own and is never satisfied. They take what they want at any cost and God says, I see that. Well, then God's going to respond to the thieves. In verse 7, he says, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled to them. Because you have plundered many nations, all of the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So those that get taken advantage of, they are going to rise up and the violent thieves will be stolen from. Those that have plunder, they will be plundered. And God says, I see this and this is what is coming for them. They will receive what is due. There's a second woe, the woe to the security seekers in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. He says, woe or sorrow is coming for those that seek to be untouchable. And this was the Babylonians. They sought security. They wanted everyone to fear them and they wanted to have nothing to fear. So what do they do? They built a massive city. It was a city that brought them security. It was a city that was about 200 square miles, about the size of Chicago. It had three sets of walls that history tells us that they reached 320 feet in the air, about the size of a football field standing up. These walls were 80 feet wide. In fact, they had chariot races around the top of this wall. There were 250 watchtowers to keep watch at the enemy. There were 100 brass gates. In fact, they were so um, nervous about their security, the Euphrates River ran close by, so they created a channel to bring water in underneath the wall so they did not have to go outside for water. They were seeking their security. And notice God's response in verse 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Well, to understand this, we need to know what they did. Anytime they would come into a city, they would come into your house and completely destroy it and take what they wanted from it. It might be a door, it might be a beam, it might be some other wood. They would go into the temple, they would tear the doors down, they would grab the beams and the wood, the stone, and they would take it to build their city. And God is saying, there is coming a day that those walls, and those beams that you stole, they will cry out. In the secure, they will become unsecured. The third woe, the woe of the violators in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity that sorrow is coming for the one that builds through murder and corruption. You encourage violence and injustice and God says, I see that. So God's response in verse 13. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. God promises that the wealth of the nations it will be turned to ashes. And that those who use people will be consumed by God's glory. Just like the waters covering the sea. Well, there's a fourth woe. Woe to those who shame, in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. He says, woe or sorrow is coming for the one who seeks to shame other people. You use fear, you use violence to make them drink, to get them drunk, to take advantage of them. God says, I see it. And here's my response in verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Those that seek to bring shame upon other people, they will drink the cup of God's judgment from His hand. Those that seek to shame others, they will be shamed. That's the promise. There's a final woe in verse 18. Woe to the idol makers. Begins in verse 18, says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trust in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to the wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone. Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. It says, Woe or sorrow awaits. Sorrow is coming to those that make and worship idols. But in those verses, did you see why? Idols are so attractive is that we get to make the idols. We get to make the gods in our own image. We get to make them exactly how we want. And why do we do that? It's because idols give us exactly what we desire. Idols are never going to hold us accountable. They're never going to show us a different way because they will give us exactly what we want. So God's response in verse 20, But the Lord is in His holy temple, let all the earth keep silent before Him. That God is going to silence all idols and all idol worshipers. That He will reign supremely from His temple and His presence alone will tear them apart. That idol worshipers, they will be without hope. And He's telling Habakkuk, this is my plan. This is my judgment that is coming for their wicked and sinfulness. Will you trust me in this time? And here's what is so interesting. And almost every time we see a judgment, there's there's always a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment. So let me show you the near fulfillment about when all of this takes place. You have to go to Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, there's a man named Belshazzar, and he is the son of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's throwing this massive party of about a a thousand nobles. They bring in all the drinks they can and food they have. And he throws this party, and the room is full of people watching this party take place. It tells us that they uh, bring in some, some vessels to drink from that they had stolen from the temple. In doing this, they're drinking and they're praising their idols, and all of a sudden a hand appears. Imagine the, the fright that this created. Well, so what does Belshazzar do? He wants to know what this writing says, so he brings in uh, the enchanters, he brings in the astrologers, but no one can tell him. So his wife says, well, I've heard of a man that might can tell us what the writing means, and his name is Daniel. So Daniel is brought in, and in Daniel five verse twenty five we read the encounter. This is how it reads, and this is the writing that was inscribed: Mia Mian Tinkle Parson." And this is the interpretation of the matter: "Men, men, God had numbered has numbered the days of your kingdom, and brought it to an end." Imagine what this meant when Belshazzar heard that, Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peress, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. I can imagine what he was thinking. That God has told him what's going to happen through the writing on the wall, even down to the one that will make that happen, the Medes and the Persians. But notice what he does. He gave the command, and Daniel, he was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him and he, that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. And then notice what it says in verse 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, the Babylonian king was killed. And Darius, noticed of the Medes received the kingdom being about 62 years old. That very night, Belshazzar is killed and the kingdom was destroyed. And that was in 539 B.C. Sixty years after Habakkuk wrote these words down, that's what happens in Daniel chapter 5. The Medes and the Persians went to Babylon. So here's this kingdom, Babylon, set up, thought that, they were completely safe. You know how they did it? They took that river that they had channeled off of the Euphrates and they dammed it up. And as the water began coming down over the cover of night, they came in on that riverbed underneath the wall. And in one night, they completely destroyed Babylon. That God always keeps his promise. And that's the near fulfillment. I want us to know there is also a future fulfillment, one that we are waiting to happen. And you read about it in Revelation chapter 16 through 19. Let me read a few verses beginning in Revelation 16, verses 15 to 19, to see this future fulfillment of the promise that God made to Habakkuk that he recorded. In verse 15, it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garment on, that he may not be naked and be exposed. And Then they assembled them in that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done, the appointed time. And there was flashes of lightning, rumblings, Perils of thunder and a great earthquake such that had never been since man had been on earth. So great was that earthquake. And then notice in verse 19. The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great. To make her drain or drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath that judgment is coming, punishment is coming. Well, then you turn to chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. This is how it reads. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, not an idol. For His judgments, they're true and they're just. For he has judged the great prostitute Babylon. Who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of the servants. But at this time there is no Babylon. They've been completely wiped from the face of the earth. So what is he talking about? Well, just like as Nebuchadnezzar was a representative of Babylon. Babylon here is a representative of all evil, of all sinfulness, of all wickedness. All that is around us and all that is within us. And here's the truth. Every single one of us are born into this world and we are citizens of Babylon. We are born sinful. We are born wicked and we stand against God. We want to be our own gods. God is saying there is coming a judgment, one day a punishment for what is deserved on all of those that are citizens that belong to Babylon. But there's hope. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2 through 5, God gave us a contrast. There is one group of Babylon, the sinful, the wicked, the selfish. But the righteous shall live by faith. There is a group, there are people that are living in faithfulness to God. Well, how does that change happen? How do you move from being a a citizen of Babylon to being those that are righteous that live by faith? It's through one person, Jesus Christ, because He came and He endured the punishment that every citizen of Babylon deserves. And those that will put their faith in Him, that will trust in Him, become citizens of a different kingdom, the citizens of heaven. And that's the only way it happens. Those that trust in Jesus are taken from citizens of Babylon and are made children of God. So this morning I'm wondering, are you still a citizen of Babylon? Well, this morning could be the day that you become a citizen of heaven. That all you have to do is to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did in your place. Because I want you to know that is my only hope. There is not enough goodness in me. Not me on my best day would I ever have enough to earn my place there. But I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone that he died in my place So when I stand before God one day, when that judgment will be uh, delivered out, my only hope is that I will say, but but I'm with Him. I'm with Jesus. And that is the only way we get our citizenship changed. And if you are a citizen of heaven, a child of God, you know what we're to be doing in the meantime? Yes, we live in a world that is covered with wickedness and sinfulness and selfishness and all the things. Well, we are to be a contrast to that. We are to allow the righteousness, not our own, but the righteousness that God gives us, that we are to live by faith in the backdrop of wickedness, that we could shine in a way that we never could on our own. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.